In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. They're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Morning, guys. Welcome back to the Ensons podcast. Good morning, Blaine. Good morning, Sam. And we have with us a kind of Easter egg who is introduced by the sound of his voice alone. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi, Alan. Welcome Hi, to the yeah. Ensons podcast. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, we have snaked Alan Arnold from the Ransom Tart podcast. Yes. To the Ensons podcast this morning, because together, Sam and Alan represent the two guys who never want to do listening prayer. <laughs> wow. Man. Yeah. Whoa. Just because it happened the other day in the kitchen doesn't mean that's always the case. Right. But yeah, we we were in a fog and Blaine helped us hear a little bit better. Thank you for that, that rendering that of that happened story. ever before, but it was a neat <laughs> one-time experience. Yep. Never to be repeated. <laughs> we are in the studio together because of a response that you gave, Alan, at a Ransom Tart event that we've just come back from. And rather than framing it, Alan, would you just say, you know, what you were responding to and then why you picked that? Of all the glamorous stories you could have picked, uh, you decided to go uh, with something a little bit deeper. Right. It was opening night and John's first session, and there's a response during that to a different guy will come up and talk about battle, and one will talk about adventure, and one will talk about beauty. And uh, John asked me to talk about battle. And so part of that is examining your world and thinking through, okay, what am I struggling with? What am I battling against right now? Not so much, although it may be a long-term thing, I wanted it to be current. And I thought you were going to tell the basketball coach story. <laughs> At, during the response? Yeah, like when you were going up, I thought, you know what would be an awesome story is dealing with your children's... I was thinking it was a football coach. Self-righteous basketball coaches. Is it football or basketball? Uh, what well, was basketball? Oh. And some of them may be listeners. No, I don't think they are. Um but I didn't tell that story then, but I can later in the podcast uh, if you want me to. But I was looking inward and the battle I've been facing most recently is one of that I've seen come out as shame and diminishment. And not just that it's come out, but I've, I've seen it through my responses to things. And so that was what I spoke about um, and what I'd like to share with you guys a little bit more today. Because... You're the only one out there who feels shame and diminishment <laughs> and feels the need to pull away from things. Well, the, the wild thing is, too, I think most of the time, right, we all do in some ways, 
but the way it plays out looks so different in you and in Blaine mm-hmm. and you and and the people listening. So there's not one way to easily, I think, go, that's it. My response was shame-based or fueled from feeling diminishment. Um, the way I saw it was recently was we were at a large gathering, about 50, 60 people, and these were uh, allies. And it was it wasn't a ransomed heart event, but it was an offsite out of town gathering, and we would do uh, scheduled kind of a, events during the day, and then a social gathering in the evenings. And what I would find myself doing was as the evening would approach, just dread thinking about being in a room without a scheduled conversation or a specific thing, and just mingling. And these are people I really enjoy being around. And I found myself going, this is odd. This isn't normal. It should be a time of joy. But what I did was I stayed in the room for about the first night, about three, four minutes, kind of walked the circumference, said hi to a few people so I could be seen, the scene that I was there. And then even though the event was several hours, I snuck out quickly and went back to my hotel room to read. I, I love books and I love reading. And so I was doing that, but but more than reading, I realized I was hiding. Like that would be a more accurate description of what I was doing. And the next morning, a bunch of people came up and said, hey, where were you last night? Like we, you were there, but then you weren't. And we really missed your presence. And I just, even though they were saying that really sincere, I found the voice in my head saying, yeah, that's BS. Like you don't really, you don't really mean it. You're trying to be nice. But I wanted to try to do it differently that night, next social event um, that came up in the evening, and same exact thing happened. I stayed about four or five minutes, felt the voice I was hearing is, nobody's going to miss you if you're not there, and nobody really cares if you are there. And so rather than polite back and forth nothingness, I just want to pull out because nobody cares anyway. And I'm tired of trying and putting mm-hmm. myself out there without without having much result. So that whole gathering, both nights, um, that's what that was my course of action. And that's when second night, I just really I put the book down and I said, "Man, this is this is not healthy. It's not good, and it's not even how the people around me feel about me." I don't think. But it was this heavy sense of, if I can name it even more accurately than shame or diminishment, it was seeing in my life, I have this sense that I'm the disposable one. And that, I hate the word disposable, but that's what I was, that's what I was sensing I was. Mm. You could feel the, oh, crap, recognition in the room as you told that story. And, you know, I referenced the basketball story, not to tee you up, but to go, there are areas that I, that I know about your life where the battle is almost glamorous, where it's like um, your kid needs some intervention with a teacher or with a coach or whatever it is, or there's something going on with the auto mechanic in your car and you come up and then go, oh my gosh, but right. let's actually go to how hard it is to show up with your heart. 
Well, yeah. can, can I one thing about that? Because I think for the guys listening to like, there's this dichotomy, at least in me, and I think it's in most guys, where if it's um, giving a talk somewhere, for me, I could be up in front of and have been thousands of people and I feel very confident. I don't feel diminishment. I feel like I'm there to do something and I can do that well. Or in a situation where I have to address a coach or the auto mechanic that's trying to charge way more than he should, there's an immediate sense of, yeah, I can do this. I'm There's not even a hesitancy. So it's not for me the outward ability to come through. It's more this inner sense that, but on a deeper level, nobody really wants to know me on a deep level and I want to be known and I'm weary from trying. And so it, it you can look and be in a lot of situations, the go-to guy to make things happen and still have that internal battle. So mm. it's not I, just if you're shy or if you're withdrawn. Right. It feels like a lot of those contexts, like the difference is in the context where there's purpose and clarity and need and there's set parameters, those feel very easy to function. But as soon as it's open and loose, I, can, I, I know the feeling in my heel that makes me pivot as I walk into a room. Like there's a specific feeling as I walk in and go, oh no, like I'm, I need to now do that two hour or whatever social gathering. I felt it in a variety of different settings. I felt at that same event, we had like an open lunch and I walk into a room and I can feel the weight on my right heel as I want to literally just swing around on it and like walk straight back out the doors. That listless, open, uh, it feels like a, an arena that everybody else is somehow okay in. Like everybody else is assured and fine and capable right. and chatting and mingling. And somehow they all got there like 30 minutes before I did. Like, I don't know how this always <laughs> happens or if it's my own. I'm just, I'm so resonating with this of like, I often try to arrive like right at the last minute before something starts in those kind of situations Right. that did this schooling and they would be like an hour beforehand people would mingle have coffee get set up and I would arrive like the minute yes. after the teaching had started yes. so that I wouldn't have to deal with any of that I could just kind of get in my seat and then the parameters are back and everything is moving down the field and that feels like efficiency on one hand and mm -hmm. I because I did that too and do that still and I always labeled it as, well, I'm just efficient. Like I will come into the meeting or the gathering at the last second because it lets me get everything I need to get done as much as I can before that second. But it really isn't for me, at least efficiency. It's avoidance and it's that place inside that doesn't want to engage in that way. You like have the two and a half minutes before the meeting starts where you're just sitting around the conference room table going, why does it feel like the verdict on me is out right now? Right. Ugh. Oh, man. My problem in this podcast is knowing that so many of my friends graciously listen. And we'll get the... Uh, Both of them. They'll get the <laughs> Sam listens after the case. <laughs> and uh, Luke listens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm just going, oh, this is like the backstage pass to some of these stories. Because I'm aware that there are multiple flavors of hiding 
and you know you talking about fighting the verdict that you are disposable just the other day i'm with a bunch of guys and we're catching up and then we sort of have a shared sense of hey we should move into kind of praying for some of these things and i don't do that every time i'm together with my friends but in this case it was hey let's kind of turn the corner and i think many of us can recognize when that moment suddenly happens and you go it's either oh man we need to actually this conversation needs to take a more serious turn or we actually should pray in response to what that person just said. And it was, hey, so that sounds significant. And then this kind of who else could use some prayer. And was this us in the kitchen again? Is that what you're referring to? No, <laughs> this was after that. Oh, uh, oh okay. Wow, different time. <laughs> and I could feel the decision taking place immediately. That was, I am not going to tell you. And sort of born out of, uh, I don't believe that you care. But even deeper, as actually, as I was unpacking this weekend, the event where there is something in me that goes, I know that you will in some sense fail to respond to me, person I'm talking to. And while I can understand in concept how Jesus would provide a way to relate anyway. Yes. I don't actually know how that works right now. Because what I feel like I have is my heart in process, your heart in process, and so much lost in the aggregate deficit, so much lost between our two processes that for me to show up and go, this is what my heart is doing. And to, to you know, to in essence not hide feels futile yes. because I know that in some sense, uh, simply because I know that the response will be imperfect, even if it's loving. Like in social gatherings or small groups, and we've talked about with friends, but just early in the podcast to take a, what I think is even a deeper personal cut, I see this play out with my wife and I've got a super good marriage, loving wife. I mean, truly, like Kelly is one of the kindest, tenderest people I know in the world. And I get to have her to be married to her and have her as a wife. And so she does go after my heart. But what I would find when we had disagreements, we're in our 20th year of marriage, 21st year. And for the first, I would say, 18, 19 years, like up until very recent, any time we would have a disagreement, not an earth shattering, big, huge issue, but but just enough of something where it was uh, tense or a 20, 30 minute conversation where we really didn't see eye to eye over some medium level thing, we would be done. I would drive off to wherever. And I remember thinking, she's going to divorce me. The marriage is over. Like mm -hmm. this is, this is it. To not, like totally irrational. Nothing said in the conversation that would be, lead to that. It would be this thought going through my mind, though, uh, and it ties back to that being that disposable person. Like, eventually, um, 
you're just, she's going to move on. And anything where there was disagreement in my mind would start to trigger that. So then when I would talk to her later that evening and be like, Hey, I just, we just need to sit down. I just want to make sure we're okay. She's like, about what? Mm. I'm like, about this morning. She's like, I haven't even thought about that. We're fine. We've been fine since we've had the conversation. And literally in my mind, I'm seeing a picture of myself in an apartment across town trying to figure out when I can visit my kids because, <laughs> oh my you know, like it's, <laughs> sure. it's, but it's that toxicity of that lie. And for me, as I went backwards, why is that happening? What, what is it in my story? That was the story of my dad. Like my mom did dismiss him when I was in middle school. Most vivid memory of my middle school, of my childhood was when they called us in a room and, and she said, you know, um, your dad's going to move out. And there wasn't really any reason, like there wasn't some huge thing. I think she just felt like she wanted something different and was kind of tired of that marriage. And, and so in a sense, my dad got kicked out of the house. She kept the house and our life kind of continued as normal, but he was in an apartment across town and didn't want the divorce, loved being a dad. Um, and yeah, they had their disagreements, but but something I think shifted in me in that point to, oh my gosh, this is this is what happens. All of a sudden out of nowhere, you are asked to to leave. And so anyway, that that has all kind of played into some of the things now that I think bring that shame diminishment sense of nobody really wants to know you. And at any moment, it could all be over. So it does help to to start tracing those threads backwards. Mm, yeah, wow, that's huge. I, I think about the way out of this, like to to admit it feels very vulnerable, even to admit the shallower stuff, right? Like the tier one isn't easy in terms of acknowledging, why am I withdrawing? Why, why am I ejecting? Why do I feel the need to spin on my heel and leave the room? To admit the the pull is to admit the vulnerability, is to admit that there's a sensitivity there to I'm not needed or I'm not even wanted or that could even go deeper. I'm disposable. Like, oh, that feels like a very difficult first step. And I don't know why that surprises me. I feel like maybe other journeys towards wholeness, like the first step is maybe kind of easy. And it's like, hey, this welcome towards this. But this one feels like we we do these things because they feel like the safe alternative, the hiding, the withdrawing, the not staying very long, the arriving to the meeting late, the trying to button things up in the marriage. Like all of those are the safe choices. Yes. And to even yes. name them as the safe choice begins the tearing down of their safety. Totally. It's funny. This also came up recently, Alan, between you and I, but there is a further pull to misdiagnose your hiding and go, well, I'm an introvert. Or, well, I have, I just get anxious in social situations. and Which what, you might be anxious. Right. But that might not be the end of it. Exactly. What I'm, what I'm struck by in your story, Alan, is this underlying revelation that something happened your worldview, and I mean this of 
each person's worldview was formed somewhere. Mm -hmm. The attack got in somewhere. And when we only identify with, yeah, I just kind of get stressed out at church. What we actually do is build a kind of false floor to prevent further excavation and go, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just an introvert. If or, the, a cup, or the efficient thing. Right. Or the efficient thing. I'm great if a couple people are, are around, but you know, once it's uh, nine, 10, I, I don't really like that relational yes. space and without asking why. And I, you know, I feel the same impulse to go, oh, you know, to find some reason besides the deeper reason why when I show up to the meeting, I don't want to talk to anybody. And I could put it as, oh, I just don't like disrupting my flow. Mm. And that may be true. And I don't like disrupting my flow. But why? <laughs> so here's a question for you guys. Um, what was it that let you or forced you to name the reality of, of the thing? Like, what was it that forced you out of the safety of the justification or the hiding and allowed you or forced you to name the, oh, I actually feel worthless or, oh, I'm actually afraid of being seen or what what was it that got you to that place, if you can remember? Well, for me, it was that conversation with Kelly and it wasn't one, it was many where it exposed me, it exposed the the length to, you know, lies can grow when they're unexposed and it keeps building in your mind and building in your mind and building and the hold grows. And I think when Kelly, when I would tell her, yeah, I think this is what's driving this fear. She would look at me like, oh my gosh, like that's, that's not, we're not even in reality. Like I, I don't ever think that I've never once thought about like, I will never, we'll never divorce. And and I don't even remember what we were talking about this morning. And so I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together going, okay, wow, where did this come from? Like, that's that's not normal. And as I speak the words, I can even sense it's not normal. But when it's inside me, it feels really logical. And so that was the beginning for me. And then as I went back and started looking at, right, I've always said the most defining moment of my boyhood was that night my parents said they were going to get a divorce. Like every other memory from childhood are snapshots, but that is like a video that or a movie that runs for an hour. I remember every moment, not a snapshot. Wow. But I never put that together with my reactions as a grown man. I just looked at it like, wow, yeah, that was a, a really sad event. Not did that event shape me. And then going forward, I can remember my dad who's passed away uh, many years ago, but he would say things out of his woundedness from that, like, yeah, Arnold men never make good husbands. Like he would say that sitting at a table with Kelly and me, and he wouldn't say it as a indictment on me. You know, he, he was a very kind man. I think he was speaking his own wounding mm-hmm. about himself, but making a generational announcement. And, and of course I hear that and I, and I go, no, 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 internally that I'm not going to, I'm not, I am going to make a good husband, but I think it kept bringing up that, or maybe things will repeat itself. And one day I'll be that, you know, like my father Mm -hmm. who was asked to leave. So to me, it's exposure that brings healing 
Uh, and that exposure when it comes to light for me was through marriage and through a wife who cared enough to push in. Mm. Man, potent. Where did my hiding begin to come to the surface? For me, it was encountering a, of all things, mine was in a church context. Who knew? Uh, but <laughs> I guess it is good for something. <laughs> Zinger. Uh, but it was being with a group of people who deeply believed that your need revealed Jesus as much as your gifting. And that for me was actually radical going, oh, it not only, I think I've talked about this quite a bit, but not only the resurrection, not only the all-surpassing power of God and the ability to break agreements and heal the brokenhearted, but also the ability of Jesus to address a person in process, which is only seen when a person who is in process shares the story. And so it was just people routinely asking, yeah, where is life not great though? Where did you not do your role well? And then what did it look like to relate with God in that? And it suddenly... What it exposed was a pathological aversion to doing that and going, I do not want to show up where my heart is in process because what I don't want to do is uh, give people who are in process access to that space because I actually don't think that Jesus is enough, that his presence, care, ability to use the partial is significant enough that, you know, you can share a... I can share an in-process story with someone and have them kind of blow it and we're still fine. And it's like, and when we can just roll with it, like yeah. as in great improv and go, yeah, not really, what really kind of the stakes are this with an experience of the love of God being sufficient. So Sam, where did you start yeah. to come out of hiding? <laughs> um, for me, I started seeing red flags in my disproportionate reaction to things. Um, I looked around and saw how other people responded to uh, negative interactions or a negative um, assumption of an interaction. And I seemed to have a stronger uh, pull away than the average person. And like, that, what's an example of that? Yeah, I would say um, the, we talked about this super recently, so it's the reason this comes to mind, but the motorcycle film negativity. Like I, I had a very like visceral reaction to some online hatred, which on the one hand feels completely justifiable, but I would like, I was almost catatonic at certain points. And that to me <laughs> made me morbidly curious <laughs> I could like dissociate a little bit and like look at myself in a fetal position and go, I don't think this is a good sign. <laughs> I wonder what's going yeah. on there. So they didn't all have to be moments like that, though that is the first one that comes to mind. Moments of my reaction seems to be different than other people's reactions, though justifiable to myself. That at least was a clue to start digging around in there. The other example that comes to mind is as I like to invite other people in to that particular area feels like inviting a bunch of toddlers to beat up on you as the pinata. 
right? It's like, you're just, no one's going to do it well. As to your point, Blaine, of like, can Jesus be enough when you share, hey, I feel blank. I feel inadequate. I feel not chosen. I feel disposable. I feel whatever. And that verdict has been confirmed in a thousand different ways. It can feel like you're not going to, oh, I just, I don't know that every time you go there, it's going to be handled like with a a surgeon's hands. I find most of the time I have to have like another resiliency of I'm going to expose that. And I'm, I know you guys are just going to beat the crap out of me here and I have to be okay with that. It was, that was my experience at the, the Allender center doing those classes as we would, we would practice on each other, hearing each other's stories. And it was like, okay, get ready to be asked a lot of painful and unhelpful questions as we learn to ask good questions of each other. Yeah. Well, when Blaine, you said it's easy to label on the front end, introvert, extrovert, you know, I just do better in smaller groups. I think those, you're so right. Those are such surface security blankets that we can have. And this may not be the podcast to talk about this, but I don't believe we're made. I don't believe God makes us introverts or extroverts because if our goal is to become more Christ-like, I don't see Christ as an introvert or an extrovert. And I don't see God as an introvert or an extrovert. There are moments of solitude and there are moments in great crowds and they seem to be wholehearted in all that they do. And so for us to kind of fragment and say, no, 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 I'm this label. I think we're naming our brokenness more than we're naming who we could become. Oh, yes. And can we just, let's just take it to a neurochemical level for a moment where let's go because people always come back. I don't know why everyone knows this one thing like me about being introvert, extrovert. And they'll go, well, I've kind of heard it's where you go to recharge. And I'm like, well, social interactions tend to stimulate endorphins. Solitude tends to stimulate serotonin. Both promote a Mm. feeling of well-being, but they're different. And so what are you addicted to? Are you addicted to endorphins or are you addicted to the relief you get in solitude because whoever you are, that happens. The experience of Mm. excitement is different than the experience of well-being. And so whatever you gravitate to for wellness, fine. But the idea that there is a person who only recharges by themselves kind of goes, no, being by yourself kind of does one kind of thing for you. Being with people does another kind of thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I hid from myself on this issue because I was really good at doing things. And so I would be the guy, like if somebody in the outpost wanted to buy a car, they, I'd say, yeah, bring me along. Cause I love, I will negotiate it down. I will fight for you. I will wear that salesperson out till we get the best deal ever at, you know, or if a coach, there's an issue with our, a coach or a teacher, I, I won't be rude, but I will go in with a strength and solve that situation. And so outwardly, I didn't, sure didn't come across as disposable or feeling diminishment. I was the guy to make it happen. But what that was masking was the being part of me because I felt like, yep, I can carry my sword well. But when I set it down, people want me to use the sword for them. But when I set it down, nobody really wants to hang out. And so the being part, the, the part of wanting to be known and have my story told rightly, and it can't be told rightly if people don't know you intimately, 
that was the part I felt like I'm going to go through my whole life. The lie was, and nobody will really want to know me deeply. They'll be happy to use my strength to benefit from it, to, to take whatever I can offer. But then when the lights go down and the situation ends, they walk off and I'm alone. I'm unknown. So that was this thing I had to name before healing and, you know, like, let there be light because that's where it gets exposed and the healing comes. That's so huge. Uh, not that we are now all doing this and living this perfectly and we're all free from trying to withdraw, but as we do head towards the landing of this, my question, I find myself wondering like, when, when you feel that pull, because it does come back, that pull to just circulate through the rooms where everybody sees you and then you get to go back to your hotel room where it's safe. Um, are you aware of it? Are you aware of the pull to withdraw and what's really going on? This is for all of us, but first you, Alan. Um, and what what's helped change that? I am aware of it big time now. And what has helped me is in that moment to go, okay, God, I don't want to go for relief right now. This is an internal conversation I have. I don't want more than relief. I want restoration. I want to be whole in this area. So it's going, even if it feels uncomfortable, and even if the person I walk up to and talk to talks about themselves for 40 minutes and doesn't once ask how I'm doing, and then they walk away, and it sure feels like a validation. People of, do that all the time. Right. All like, the time. Like you shake hands and they, do circular breathing and never stop and talk and talk and talk. And it's the me monster, you know, the comedian talks about um, where it's all about them. It's easy at the end of that. And then somebody catches their eye and they go over there to say, yep, I am disposable like that. This proves he didn't really want to know me or she didn't want to know me, but to go, no, I'm still going to press in. I'm still going to stay on this course of believing People want to know me for who I am, even if it doesn't play out or feel true in that situation. I still want to be that man who leaves at the end of the party, but who stayed in it and offered a strength, even if it wasn't accepted. But a lot of times, remarkably, when you do push through it, you do see people who show they care. And I mean, you're out of the game. I mean, if you only, if you leave before it even begins, you never have a chance to see victory. And it's it's a self-fulfilling, right, I left early because nobody wanted to talk to me and nobody talked to me when I left because I was alone. And so I felt alone, I am alone. And so it just continues to build. So I think it's for me saying, I don't want relief. I don't want the old scripts. I, I want to step out in search of wholeness. Oh, and I've seen that, that self-fulfilling thing play out if I choose, okay, I'm going to stay, but I'm just going to sit here and see if anybody comes and talks yes. to me. And you just set up all of these barriers and hoops for people to jump through. And then you leave feeling so justified because they didn't do it. Right. Oh, and, okay. And to simply go, uh, the enemy is a brilliant attorney. And if I go into a social situation or any situation willing to hear both cases... 
I am setting myself up for failure where it's like, okay, I'm going in. I feel like nobody really cares. Uh, Jesus, you can give me the best evidence you have for people caring. Uh, Satan, you can give me the best evidence you have for people not caring. And then I will decide between the two who I think is right and go, crap. If you go in, uh, I I have already chosen unbelief. So I should not be surprised when I find myself not believing. At and the you've end chosen of unbelief because you're saying you've been willing to hear Satan's case. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was simply, yeah. I've chosen unbelief because I'm like, literally, I don't believe you yet, Jesus. Give me some evidence yes. and go. And, and, I, and I can think back on situations where I've done that, where I kind of go in and go, well, you know, here we go. And yep, there's that person doing that thing again. And yep, there are those people doing that thing again. And I don't know. It kind of seems like the bottom line is that people are too in process to participate in what God is doing and go, yikes. One of the things that we'll talk about in regards to warfare on here is uh, refusing to hear the enemy's case and going like, no, 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 no. I know that you have one. I'm not I'm not willing to entertain it. And Sam, when you ask, what do you do? I really do feel the in-process thing where I'm like, what do I do some of the time? And what do I do even though I, I still recognize this back and forth tension between actually engaging in belief with my whole heart and pulling out and... How do I not go into more shame of, oh, I'm still doing it, fail, and go, okay, um, in spite of that and in spite of the fact that it is, uh, that there are sort of <laughs> relapses, the overall movement is a gradual progression towards whole- wholeheartedness. And I would say I do a couple things that are helpful. Um one is I really have to remind myself why on a regular basis. And so I've sort of journaled this a hundred different ways, which is like, uh, you are designed for re- for relationship. Jesus really will give you what people are lacking. And you won't experience that until you put yourself in the position of showing up, feeling people only partially respond and discovering that you're still okay, Blaine, because God really is covering you. And I think I've made that as a fresh discovery, like 50 times going like, Emily, what it is, you show up anyway in belief that you can fight, you can resist the evil one, you can ask God to cover, and he really does. And then I'll tell her, you know, a month later, babe, it's crazy. Um, But to go, it has to be for something. And when Sam, you and I were talking about friendships, we were like, if your friendships are just about convenience, they're very difficult to sustain because they aren't very convenient. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, just cut them all off oh now. Oh my gosh, if they're a perk. <laughs> but if you are the fellowship of the ring and you need people to accomplish this shared task, it helps me bear with a lot more difficulty and go, I know I need to be wholehearted because the kingdom is coming and I want to be this person for my family and we have a role to play. And so if I don't, 
something major will be lost. I love like a closer examination of the Fellowship of the Ring where you're like, well, two of those guys actively hated each other when they first met. <laughs> One of the guys tries to steal the very purpose of the whole quest and make off with it. Two of the hobbits are there because they were stealing vegetables from someone's field and happens to get literally ran into. <laughs> oh, like and those same, two, <laughs> those same two hobbits go, we have no place here. Right. We should we should have left the slot and then Glorfindel, the great elf warrior, could have come. We took his slot and it's like, right. actually, you guys have a role to play. It's just not his role. Sam, what about you? Oh, for me, there's been a lot of miles in just beginning to name some of the honest, below-the-surface reaction to things. So it's easy for me to walk into a room and go, oh, here's my social anxiety again, or I'm actually needed in this particular situation, or, you know, I'm an introvert, so I just don't have capacity for this. And that has been my justification for years of not pushing in and having some honesty now for what's going beneath the surface. That's caused just enough for me to stay engaged a little bit longer, um, to have be in a room and go, I, what I realize, what I want to do is pull away and dissociate or physically leave. But I, I know I'm called to engage and I will, it may be the hardest thing. Like it might be all I have to do is just to ask somebody else a question. Hey, how, how's it going? How are you doing? And they like, they may see me as, wow, Sam, he's here. He's asking questions. He's present. And they have no idea that for me, that was all I could possibly do. Yeah. That's, that's all, all I had at that moment was just one more sentence or another 30 seconds in that space. And I think I like inchworm my way through those things now of just, okay, I've got a little bit more honesty for what's going on beneath the surface. Therefore, I'm less likely to use it as a justification to bail and in kindness, all I'll ask of myself is another 30 seconds or one more question with this person. And that like, that is often enough to get some momentum to get me through that first barrier of resistance. And next thing I know, like I will have stayed the whole time. And I've been like, wow, like that was, it was so hard to press into this thing. I'm glad I chose to, but I, I, I feel like it would be doing the person a disservice if I didn't also name, that was so hard for me to just ask one question at the very beginning. I may seem like I'm, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm like social, able to kind of do the thing, but like that was all I had. That's powerful. 